the school is not responsible for making you belong. You are. But the school is responsible for extending the invitation. Dave Bolger here, and welcome to Had I Known, a show that explores the journeys of some of the most interesting members of the Hamilton College community. This week's guest is Phyllis Breland, class of 1980. All right, welcome back to another one. It was a busy week in Had I Known land. Heard from quite a lot of people. Professor Phil Klinkner checked in. He was reflecting on the conversation we had for the show over the summer, and he said he was impressed and proud of himself. Quite quite a lot he got right. Probably would have been better if some of Phil's predictions were not so accurate. <laughs> if you uh, if you haven't heard that episode or were interested in going back and grading the political prognosticator, you can go to hadiknown.buzzsprout.com. Again, hadiknown.buzzsprout.com, and you can check out that conversation with Professor Phil Klinkner. This week, we also had some fun on social media. I shared uh, an outtake that didn't make last week's episode with John O'Keefe, where we talked a little bit about our uh, time both living in North 101 in our respective first years at Hamilton. And I talked about how it was my understanding when my three roommates and I lived there that the room was cursed. And we, in fact, kept the curse alive because one of my roommates didn't come back sophomore year. John, in the clip I shared on social media, uh, indicated that his group broke the curse. So good for them. But that led to some fun interactions on social media. And I heard from one person who uh, enlightened me to the Carnegie Casbah. I hadn't heard about this, but apparently there was a room in Carnegie that was handed down year after year and was known as the party room. So if anyone has more stories about the Carnegie Casbah, I'm all ears, because that's that's one I hadn't heard before, and I'd like to hear about that one. So I can follow us on social media, Had I Known Show. And then finally this week, I've um, been hearing from some current students. And while I like to pretend that I'm hearing from current students because they're huge fans of this show, I, <laughs> I, know, that <laughs> I know that I'm hearing from them because they're interested in talking to me about my day job. And the internships that have been posted online at my current employer. <laughs> I get it. I was I was in their shoes. I made those phone calls and sent those emails. Um, but it was interesting to talk to uh, current students and hear uh, what it's like there now. You know, we've talked about it on the show before, but can't possibly imagine what the college experience is like right now in the middle of this crazy pandemic. And this one student I talked to, my goodness, she was getting ready to head out for her semester abroad and found out only, uh, I think she said a week or two ago, that it was canceled. So the scramble to find a place to live on campus and register for classes and all of that with about a week left before students go back to campus. Just just crazy. Now, that doesn't mean that that sob story helps at all in helping the student get an internship, but you know. 
I still feel bad for him. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm going to do all I can now. All right, this week's show. Phyllis Breland, class of 1980. Boy, oh boy. I had never met Phyllis before talking to her for this episode. I'd heard plenty about her. In fact, going through the conversations I've been having uh, for this show, her name has come up quite a bit. There have been quite a few guests I've had that have benefited from Phyllis's work as the longtime director of opportunity programs at Hamilton. And what I knew of Phyllis coming into the conversation, I, I had a feeling that she'd be hitting me with some knowledge uh, along the way. And uh, I was not wrong. I mean, she was throwing knowledge haymakers left and right. And while generally my style is to let my guests talk, because I'm genuinely interested in what they have to say, I didn't have to work very hard at all with Phyllis. She says at one point in our conversation that she likes to talk. And thank God she does, because I was happy, happy to listen to her. She's got an incredible story. She's chock full of wisdom. And thankfully, she was sharing much of it in this conversation. She started out in Clinton as a student at Kirkland College. This is my first and most definitely not my last conversation with a Kirkland student. Um, but while she started as a Kirkland student, she lived through the merger and was a Hamilton graduate. So it was incredibly interesting to hear about that. It was just amazing to hear about her her life experiences in general and the experiences she's had working with students as the director of opportunity programs at Hamilton. She's recently retired, but as you can hear in the conversation, she's not finished. I hope you enjoy this conversation. I absolutely did. Here's Phyllis Breland, class of 1980. Well, thank you for doing this. I appreciate it. Well, you are welcome. You are welcome indeed. As I do this more and more and talk to more and more people, your name continues to come up as an influential figure in, in their Ooh. their experience. So I figured oh, I, had to, I had to go right to the source then. <laughs> oh, don't let me get a big head. You know? <laughs> um. Congratulations on retirement. Well, thank you. It has been an adjustment. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. You know, um, when you're used to working all the time and then you suddenly get up and you have time that you pray to have, you don't know what to do with it. Uh, so you have to redefine things and learn this new mode of operation. So. Okay. Any any big plans? Any Any projects? You don't well, strike me as the type that would uh, just do it around the house. <laughs> That's part of my problem. <laughs> so I, um, I'm doing a little bit of consulting on the side. Okay. Um, because I am truly, truly concerned with inclusion. And I have some beliefs that uh, life has taught me. And you really have to be in it. It can't be anything that's a design that will take care of itself. You have to live it. So what I've been doing is working with people to get down to the basics because, um, you know, words are great. We know how important words are. But sometimes we get so smart, we remove ourselves from the intent mm -hmm. of the word. And so that's what I've been working on. So. If you are you want to do a program that's more inclusive, well, the first person you have to be more inclusive with is yourself. Mm. And why are you doing it? And if you're going to be somebody's ally, have you asked them if they want you to be their ally? Those very simple things. And 
we just forget them sometimes. And I've just been mm, involved with too many plans that aren't fundamental. Mm. They're, you know, they're wonderful things and sound really good, but the execution is off. Right. And you or, do, or it doesn't happen at all. Or it doesn't happen. And you yeah. cannot, um, I believe, just do something and say automatically that that will make people feel like they belong. It doesn't work that way. It's my choice whether or not I want to belong or not. Uh-huh. But what you have to do for me is extend the invitation. And then make it so that it's easier for me to accept. And that comes with consistency and availability and presence. And if I know you want me there, well, then I'm more inclined to come. And in the work you're doing now as a consultant, how how are you helping make that change? Well, what I'm doing, first of all, we start with just talking to people. Uh And we redefine this is what this means. And I challenge because... I can facilitate the process and I'm careful to say to people, this is no magic bullet. You're not going to step out of this knowing all of a sudden how to be great with inclusion Um, and giving them permission or helping them give themselves permission to do it. So we start with the definitions. I start with organization, the how to's, all of those basic things that we assume that everybody's in agreement with, but we're not because Mm -hmm talk about them right and helping people develop not only safe space but brave space and the safe is the ability to say it and the brave is the ability to be challenged because mm-hmm. you and I can sit there and I can shake my head and say yes I understand but I really don't and I'm really not interested in understanding uh, I'm just saying, okay, you said it, but I don't take it with me. I don't do anything with it. So I, I feel that if we can have these honest conversations, which are so hard, right? so very hard, because from the time we're little people, we're taught to lie. We are. And we're taught to <laughs> say what, what we are really thinking or what we're really feeling. Um, and the older we get, the better we get at it. Mm-hmm. So I just try to break it down uh, so that people are reminded of why they're doing what they're doing and what they can bring to the table to make it better. And even to have people say to me, I have people say, well, I'm here because, you know, my boss said I have to. Well, that's an honest statement. Yeah. Right. Let's let's just talk about that. And maybe you'll get something and maybe you'll be enlightened. All I'm asking is that you try to to accept this openly and that fear that fear of having an open dialogue i think it's easy to think well someone doesn't want to be honest or truthful because they have beliefs that are racist sexist you know whatever it may be but in fact the fear is the opposite of not wanting to offend and not knowing what's the the exactly exactly we're we're so we want to be politically correct. Right. But if we listen to what we're saying, being politically correct doesn't mean I'm being empathetic. Right. It doesn't mean I care at all about what you might be feeling or what you're thinking. And then we get confused with thoughts versus feelings. Mm. We intertwine it or exchange the two, interchange the two. So I, I do all of that. And 
And I don't do, you know how they have these long sessions where you do it for three hours and you go, well, no, um, these are life lessons. And so it comes in bits and pieces, right? How do you eat the elephant one bite at a time? <laughs> you got to keep coming to this. You can't sit there and think, okay, well, I'm going to attend this session and then I'm cool with it. No, it's not like that. You have to practice. Mm. You have to practice. And so I am... Um, do all different kinds of things. I'll tell you like one assignment I gave one of my groups was let's do a collage and give me the picture of someone dead or alive, young or old, famous or infamous that impacted your life. And the only guideline is that person can't be white. What I was looking for were the old standbys, you know, Martin Luther King. Sure. Max, Angela, David, all these kinds of things. And my question to people was, where's your neighbor? Mm-hmm. Where's the person that you are, are that impacts your life on a daily basis? And if you're looking at these people to impact you, why must they have a claim? Why must they have worldwide acclaim? The whole idea is go build relationships with your neighbor. Right. Right. A student asked me um, years ago, how do you build relationships with a black person? And I thought for a minute, I thought, fair question. You know, mm-hmm. you know, this person has been told some different things. And I just said, well, how about hello? <laughs> <laughs> you know? So that's what I've been working on, because I have found through my years at Hamilton that that has become even more important to me now. When I came to Hamilton as a Kirkland student, I was an outspoken young woman, part militant. You know, I showed up in my dashiki and combat boots and my turbans and things like that. And um, they allowed me to be me. That was part of the Kirkland um, where, and and the, the mantra was, or not the mantra, but the charge was, Okay, you can be whatever you want to be, but just prove it and know how to say it and know how to do it. Uh, oh, okay. Oh, I can take that. And I love to learn. So it worked out well for me. Not to say that I didn't have my challenges because I did. Mm. And I had my challenges as a black person and I had my challenges as a young black woman. Mm-hmm. And I can recall I was a theater major. So I can recall standing on the rock. We had to all do a a senior project, which is something they still have to do now. But I picked a one act play that was known in the black community that I had done and nobody knew it. And I can recall I stood on the rock swing because people weren't attending. And I challenged them, how dare you say that you're my friend and you don't want to come and support me and see my work? Well, I had sold out nights. I mean, and I let them. <laughs> I read them the riot act. Some very colorful words. Um, but the point being, during my whole time as a theater manager, I refused to participate in any main stage show. Hmm. Because I was too good not to be the lead. <laughs> so I thought, well, if I can't be the lead, why should I do it? <laughs> And um, Carol Bellini Sharp, I'll not forget her, and I will always owe her for this. 
she recognized that. And so my senior year to fulfill the requirement, because you had to do a main stage show, she picked a show where I could star, but not be the star, which would allow me to turn it. So I didn't play a lead character. She picked Moliere. And I played the maid, Doreen, because that was one of the bones in my butt. I don't want to be a maid. I'm not. <laughs> but Doreen was the maid. But the only character that appeared and ever seen. So I was on stage from beginning to end. And um, she allowed me that grace. She allowed me that grace and respected where I was coming from, but still showed me how we could make it work in that particular time. So um, I'm always thankful uh, to her for that hmm. because she didn't have me leave myself at the door. So I, I want to get into your, your experience on that campus as a student. So you referenced arriving at Kirkland. How did you end up coming to Kirkland? What was the, well, let me be honest. I didn't know a thing about the school. Hmm. Not a thing. I had never heard of Hamilton. Mm-hmm. And I was, though, always taught to be very active in my community. My mom did a lot of stuff with Peace Incorporated and organizations. So I was very involved uh, that way and in community theater and doing this and doing that. Where did you grow up? Syracuse, New York. Okay. So it was um, Cub Scouts and Den Mothers and Brownies and (laughs) and all that kind of stuff. And... um, I lived on the very poor side of town, and my mother always felt that we were nobody's victims. So that was how I was brought up, not a victim. So I was just working, doing my job. Um, I graduated from high school when I was 15. I went to a school where nobody talked to me about my possibilities, my strength. You know, the thing was, just get out of school, go to work, and that was going to be that. Um, I was going to school part-time in the afternoon, because I could have graduated in the 10th grade, but my mother said, oh, no, no way. And so I got my hairdressing license part-time, and I took some more classes. And one day, and I was working, and so one day I was at work, and I received a phone call from a woman, and she said, how would you like to go to college? And I said, sure, okay. And um, it was Kirkland College, and it was Chris Johnson who would then become my mentor. And this is one of those life lessons I learned. You know, you never know who's watching you, so be at your best. Hmm. Turns out this woman by the name of Roberta Harrington was paying attention to little promising Black women in Syracuse, young women. And she had her sights on me, and she referred me to Chris. Chris had me come up. And just to show you that I didn't even know where the college was, I went to Colgate because <laughs> Hamilton was in Hamilton, New York. <laughs> so, um, A mistake got, that continues to be made to this day, I think. To this day. <laughs> so when I got on campus, I met with Chris. And she said to me, you go in interview and admissions. She said, you tell them what you can do for them. Don't you dare go in there and tell them what they can do for you. Hmm. Oh, well, okay. And that's what I did. And before I left campus that afternoon, they offered me a place in the class. So I went back to work, quit my job and started college that following me. Um, 
And I was so glad because she recognized something in me that I didn't see for myself. So she pushed me and I was loud mouth. I, I, you know, a little bit of a militant, you know, power to the people and, and everything like that. So Kirkland was a good place for me to be artistic, to express myself, to be free. And then when the merger happened and, and I, and Kirkland offered some unique classes you know, I took wood shopping, so I knew how to operate band saws and things like that. I could build things. I could change my oil. I could. They taught you survival skills. There were a lot of classes like that. And you could develop your project every January that you wanted to do. So I went and made storm windows for a theater. You know, just different kinds of things that I felt were relevant for me. And when and was there a did you was there a clear divide between the schools? I mean, did you did you feel that? Well, that like no, because the way it was set up, not really. Well, there was a lot of reference to us as artsy fartsies. Hmm. Um, and the women's center was there, which was very vocal, and the gay alliance was there, which was very strong. But they were on the Kirkland campus, so the Kirkland campus seemed to attract those who were more. Um, I don't even know what to describe us as. We were just more liberal in our ideas, our approaches. We were more fluent mm-hmm. um, up against the strictness of the Hamilton male. Mm-hmm. But you could live on either campus and take classes at either school, and it all counted together. Um, but Kirkland, you called your professor by their first name, and they lived with you in the dorm. On the first floor, the dorms were faculty apartments. Uh-huh. In Hamilton, no such thing. Uh-huh. It was Professor this, and that was it. Or And they would call me Ms. Holmes or whatever. Huh. They didn't call me Phyllis kind of thing. But Kirkland was a lot friendlier, a lot warmer. Now, a school like that today would be, you know, there'd be a waiting list from here until... <laughs> Right. But but at that time, it was something new. Very, very, very much ahead of his time. Um, but those were the differences and what they were offering were different. So I could get my Latin and my old structured stuff. And I really learned how to write at Kirkland, whereas Hamilton was more self-expression, bringing, making sure that I was in my work, that my personal experience was value. And Kirkland used evaluations. There were no grades. Mm. So you got, it made you feel good to have your efforts be recognized, your creativity be recognized, your unique perspective to be recognized in your learning. So that I really, really responded to. But I was also a person of structure. So I could respond to the Hamilton side as well. Oh, interesting. Uh, and, and that came from my upbringing from my mom and how I was raised and you took care of your business and then you could play mm-hmm. for the things. And because my mom and, and my family, we we're all opinionated people. And my mother would say, y'all, you better know what you're talking about. So that fit in to the Hamilton mold. I see. You know what I was talking about. I see. I the creative side as well. And it was a nice blend for me. It's not to say either, though, that when Kirkland closed, um, I didn't miss it because there was less opportunity to be creative like that in the classroom. 
And to I, was get- curious, I was curious to ask you what the experience was like after the after the merger. Yeah, much more structured. Um, there were a lot of angry young women, a lot left. There were some faculty upheaval. Several of them stayed, which I was glad of. Uh-huh. But one of the things we had to quickly adjust to was there was this little nuance that all of the Kirkland students had to essentially reapply to Hamilton. Wow. And you had to get your transcript transposed. So your evaluations had to be turned into grades. And I don't remember exactly what the process was, but I do remember that I ended up with a Hamilton B for my work, my evaluations. So I thought, okay, that's workable. I can do that. I like the way that they challenged me Hmm. um, because it just made me more accountable. And I liked the different things that I was learning at Hamilton that I wasn't learning before. Or maybe I was learning them and I chose not to, you know. Sure. Right, it was a different thing, but I did like the structure of Hamilton very much. Now, I will say, too, that um, it was challenging for me, very, very challenging to take that creative um, juice and, and give it measurement, which is what Hamilton was, you know, the measurement, the structure, the goals, the objectives. And that was a challenge, but I was able to rise to it. Uh-huh. So, and I made my mark there. And if I was going to do it, I was going to do it and do it well. So I was the first female Pentagonian and I was the first female class speaker. And to each thing, I brought what I needed to bring. And Kirkland had given me that foundation. So I was a true blend and I wasn't afraid. And as you talked about, as we talked about earlier, fear is this thing that um, it gets in the way of you being all that you can be. Mm-hmm. That fear is nasty. Not to say that everybody doesn't have fears. We all have fears. Right. But the fears change your mind and prevent you and put up walls and don't allow you to think that you're best, that you're better or that you're the best, it gets in the way and you lose out. And I had faculty who, no matter what I did, I'd never got any more than a C. (laughs) Right. And, you know, when I, I didn't have time to really focus on, in in my academics, on my race issues. I was too busy trying to impact the community because I had to live there. Uh And so for um, three of my four years, I lived in the ALCC and was an active member of the Black and Latin Student Union and put together programs. I began to educate how can you know how can you operate with me and not know me right um little things that are definitions of a party you know like when my white friends got together and they had a party it was about getting drunk and drinking beer but when my black friends got together we danced we danced we danced hard the all the definitions were different and all of these things stuck with me so my experience was a blended one how many black students were there during that time? Twelve. Wow. I think by the time I left there, we might have been around 
40, maybe oh, less. Uh, okay. It yeah. was not a lot. Yeah, yeah. It was not a lot. Not a lot at all. I mean, in fact, we all of us knew each other. All of us knew each other. And it, and in the Black and Latin Student Union, we were all part of that because that's what we have grounded. And one right. of the things that Kirkland helped us do for those women of color who were there before me was every Sunday we used to cook a Sunday meal, which is what we did at home. We would cook a Sunday meal. We would fry chicken, collard greens, do our hair, all that kind of stuff, because you couldn't be there and leave it behind. You just couldn't because it was a foundation for your survival. It was critical to who we were to be able to embrace it all. When I graduated from um, Hamilton and I went back home, I moved back home to Syracuse, and I took so much razzing and so much because they called me mismanagement, a sellout, and uh, all of these different things. Wow. It, it was awful, but you kept moving forward. Mm-hmm. And most of the time, I've been the one of only, the first one. Um, and why should I apologize for that? Right. Why should I apologize for that? What the hell? I can put together a few sentences. <laughs> Words. Yeah. Right? Don't don't punish me. Rise up to me. But what it also taught me was to accept people who chose not to. Yeah. Did it ever get exhausting though? Does does being constantly being the first ever and the one and only? Do you ever feel like exhausted from Oh that? my God, yeah. Yeah. It's so trying. Yeah. Because, you know, I would do things and I sit in meetings and people felt like they had to rephrase for me or that I had for all of the black people of the world that somehow in this body represented every black person that they had ever met Mm -hmm. or trying to articulate why I don't want to be like you and why I don't need to be like you. Um, And it comes now even today in my work and I talk to people and I say, you know, um, I don't, black people don't do that. We don't do that (laughs) community. You know, that's not in my hood. That don't happen in my hood. But I understand where I am. And I don't call, you know, we assign words to it like we call code switching. Okay. Well, look. It's survival. Mm-hmm. It's not cold. Not in my mind, it's not cold switching. You can call it whatever the hell you want to call it. The bottom line is I know how to get along in different arenas. Mm-hmm. Right? And so when I get home and I'm with my people and um, in my family, I was the first to graduate college. No. And not the first to go. My brother and sister went before me, but neither one of them finished until 10 years or more after I finished. So following through, and my mother had this rule, see, because they didn't have money. And we were on welfare when I started. I mean, and that in itself was degrading enough. Mm -hmm. And (laughs) my mother would say, it's my job to take care of your needs and your job to take care of your wants. So- (laughs) I worked a job from the time I was 12 years old. Always worked. So I didn't have a lot of these things that my white counterparts had. I didn't have to worry about, you know, burning my bra because I had to wear it to go to work. (laughs) You see, so, you know, and and I understand everything now. We want to shape it scholarly and I get it. 
I really do. But that wasn't the mindset when I was growing up in it. Yeah. And so I, I didn't forget those things. And those are the things that I still carry with me. And, and it's not so much that you have to follow the rules. It's you use them as a guide. Yeah. It's not change, change the system from within the system. That's right. Yeah. And this is the thing that I, this was my work um, and, and working with my students. You have to learn this system better than the people who designed it. Mm-hmm. Because it's not about what it says. It's about what it doesn't say. Because that's your end. That's your ability to dream. That's where you're going to improve your critical skill. That's how you're going to make change. And change is very, very slow and painful at times. And you have to keep getting up. When I think about some of the things that even to this day, I still have to endure. And I tell you, I made a a terrible mistake. Um, And I think that I have fixed it. But when I started having children and I moved back to this community, I thought I was doing a one-up for my kids. I really did. I thought that by bringing them to this community where I know they could get an education, where I felt that they would be safe and didn't have to deal with the things that I dealt with when I was a kid, I thought that they would be so much better off. Right? But I'm driving down the street in Utica one day with my little girl in the back of my car. And she says, Mommy, look at the Black people. Hmm. I thought, oh, shoot. My kids don't know they're Black. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. And I changed up my whole program. I started taking my kids back to Syracuse every weekend. That's where we went. We're going to go into Utica more. I'm going to show you more culture. I started teaching my kids Black history. I started making sure that they didn't negate me because that's what was happening. And I got totally freaked out one day when I went to get my daughter out of school. And they only had a few um, Black kids down there in Clinton. She went to Clinton. They only had a few Black kids down there. And I couldn't see my daughter in the crowd. I couldn't see her. And that scared me. Mm. How come I can't see you, little black girl? And one of the first things when she got of age and I said, you know, you can go to college, you can go to Hamilton. She said, oh, no. No, no, no. I need to be around more people like me. And I can't falter for that. I understand. Sure. Sure. I understand it. As long as you learn. That's what I care about. As long as you learn. Yeah. Um, but I gave her those same lessons. That's your education. You're going to pay for it. <laughs> that's what my mom did. You know, and, and if you can afford to send your kid to college, that's wonderful. But my mother said to me, well, whose education is going to be? Who, who's that going to be? And I said, mine. Well, she said, well, mine pay for it. <laughs> oh, Okay. But it gave me some interesting, um, very interesting perspectives and ways to deal with life. For instance, when it came to Santa Claus, my kids knew that Santa Claus delivered the gifts, but mommy bought them. Ah. They knew the difference. Right. And so we did things like on Christmas because, you know, single parent, I, I didn't have time. 
how could I do all of that? I had to be creative. I had to think differently. And I had to be able to look at things in a way, in a long-term way. There was no immediate answer that everything had to be a response, not a reaction, because I'm impacting these little people's lives and watching me. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) They're watching me. Yeah. So, you know, little things like that. So I got some of my heartbreak at Hamilton. I got some of my best lessons. I made friends and I lost friends. Huh. I made good friends and I lost what I thought was good friend. Right. You know, the embarrassment of making what you thought was a friend, a good white friend. And then we have parents weekend and they don't introduce you to their. Oh, wow. Right. Yeah. There's some of that. You know, a faculty person saying to me, I keep forgetting how smart you are. Uh, what? <laughs> what? And that was after I had come back. So I had my degree, had been out there working in the field, and somebody said that to me. Wow. Or what Phyllis means is, hmm. no, Phyllis said what she meant. Mm-hmm. And when I came back, so many times I would hear from my predecessor or because of my predecessor and the impact that she left. Now she had an impact on me too. And she said, and we're still friends to this day. I still visit her and talk with her. And she, people would say to me, Oh, you got such big shoes to fill. I would say, well, I brought my own. (laughs) (laughs) I brought my own. But it was her that, you know, taught me that. You sure. them what you can do. And these are life lessons. And um, that's part of also what I do today in my consulting. I take these life lessons and I bring them back to the forefront to remind people. I have a lesson um, called, or a little workshop I do called, Teach a Boy How to Pee Straight. And it was because it was something that I didn't think about as a mom of a young boy. I had to teach him how to use the the restroom like a young man would. Mm -hmm. I'm still working on that with my five-year-old. I'm going to tell you, here's the trick. (laughs) Put some Cheerios. We've used that trick for sure. Right? (laughs) When that came to me, he's 27. 27. (laughs) Think him, baby. (laughs) But the lesson is about aiming and working towards your goal. So I try to do these things in a way that make people laugh and feel better because laughter is medicine. And if we can laugh at it, it makes it a little bit easier. Now, everything is not meant to be laughed at. But we forget that humor is based on misfortune. Mm -hmm. You know? You think about the man slipping on the banana peel and we laugh, laugh, laugh because he's slipping all right. Well, he could buzz and fall and break his head wide open. Well, we're laughing. Just makes it a little bit easier to swallow. Right. 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 Yeah. So what was the um, what was the plan uh, coming out of Hamilton? You, you mentioned graduate in 1980, went back to Syracuse. Did you have an idea what was next? Oh, Yes. I was going to be a star. 
Okay. Okay. I'm gonna be famous. I have my theater degree. And I had decided that I was going to do that for a little while. And by the time I was going to 25, I was going to be married and having my first child. Didn't work at all that way. So I went to do my interviews. And I found out and I got offered some residences in theater they were going to pay me stuff like, you know, 40 bucks a week and stuff like that and expect me to live. And I said, oh, my God, no, I'm not doing this. Doesn't matter. So it doesn't matter that much to me. So I had a friend who was leaving his job in Syracuse as a fundraiser. He said, Phyllis, would you like this job? I said, yeah, I can do that. And it was all about the things that I learned at Hamilton, economic forecasting, good writing, putting a case together. I had even learned the presentation. I had that down for my theater degree, this, that, and everything. So I became a fundraiser. Okay. And I did that for eight years and I was good at it. Um, but I noticed that God always put in my place pulling somebody else along helping. So I never realized that education was the undercurrent of what I was doing. And giving people opportunity or an invitation meant the world to me to bring somebody else along. And then I look back at my life and my mother said, well, you're always bringing somebody home. You're always feeding somebody. <laughs> it was just a natural thing for me to do. Uh, and so that's what I did. But I would tell you this, I've only looked for a job once in my life. Hmm. Only once. And that was when I got married and I relocated into Rochester. But yet and still, I still had a connection because I was working with people from the church, but I had to apply um, all on my own. And I did. And the woman said, well, that job isn't for you. I got this one. And that's what I came. I've never since Hamilton been anything less than a director. Um. And so I always felt that even though my goals, I had these goals about being in the performance world and doing art and everything, but that wasn't my true calling. And I didn't see it until later. Hmm. So my work in the community um, took me down the path of education. Okay. And, um, I think partially also because I love to talk. <laughs> and I believe that what I had to say was worth hearing. Absolutely. Because right? I put in the time. I put in the work. And I was a, and I still am, a very sensitive person, more so than anybody would ever believe. Um, I cry every day. You know, it might be the puppy commercial. <laughs> you know, it just strikes my heart and it touches me. And it brings emotion to me. And that is value. That is not a weakness. It is my strength. Mm -hmm. It is my strength. And I learned um, that it's okay. And taking that on as a strength and, and recognizing that allowed me to even open up more. Because there's nothing 
that anybody can do to me that will take away my strength. Mm -hmm. I have carved out my square and I'm going to stand on it and I'm going to hold on to it and I will beat you down. And I feel that I come into people's lives for a reason if they allow it. And I do what I can. And then I move on. And I am allowing myself to be used because if I don't, the change doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I if I'm going to complain, then I have to be willing to be a part of the solution. There's just no if ands about it because anybody can point. But what are you going to do about it? And I'm thankful that as I came back to Hamilton to work, I was given that leeway to think creatively, to build different ways to get what I need to be responsive and not react to things. You know, learn how to swallow some tough things for the sake of. Mm-hmm. You know, now every time that I got a challenge, I didn't go upside one person and down the other. I, I didn't do that. I learned to listen with my eyes. And then I could read the room Mm -hmm. and figure out when to interject and how, because it goes back to those long lessons ago. You have to learn the system that is better than the people who are trying to get you to do it. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. I imagine the, um, I imagine the, the, the the notion of standing your ground, the, 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 the points you were making about, personal strength and demonstrating that not letting people move you off your spot. Mm-hmm. I imagine in your years working with the opportunity program at Hamilton, instilling that confidence and that strength in the students going through those programs yeah. was paramount. Yeah. Oh Yes. Yeah. I was one of them. Uh-huh. Right. Um, and I wanted to give all of them a piece of what I had been given dream big. Mm-hmm. Dream big. And I had a whole bunch of sayings that I would tell people. I would tell them, if you're on time, you're late. And it doesn't mean show up 15 minutes early. It means be prepared. Know where you're going, what you have to do to get there. Do your homework. And you're going to fall. You will fall down. But fall on your back so you can see how you get up. I had another one. You are a FHB, a fallible human being. You're going to make mistakes. So deal with that. Okay, so you had a raw deal and this happened. Point is, what are you going to do now? What are you going to do now? What do you need to have happen? When things happen to the students, they, you know, somebody says something to them that's off color or they feel that because of their ethnicity, they're being approached. I have to say, well, what did you say? Because don't stand by and be silent. If somebody asks you a question and it has something to do with people of color, you have no right to speak for every person of color. So you say, in speaking for myself, mm. and you make that clear, I'm not your go-to girl for that. I'm not. So, yeah, I... The opportunity programs, and and I tell you, one of the most difficult things about working in opportunity programs was to teach people, the people in the program and the people outside of the program, that it was not the student of color program. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. It's not. 
It's an academic program with standards that you have to prove. Mm-hmm. You have to prove that you have the potential to be competitive and be successful at this institution. You know, I was a straight A student coming in there, but I didn't have any money. Right. So that doesn't say it's about the student of color program, but because of how it looks on the outside. Right. Talking to students and alums who have gone through the program, the the constant battle of feeling like, you know, they were quote unquote let in or were given an, yeah. you know, given an opportunity they didn't deserve or something along those lines. Right. We hear your story. Um, you you were smarter than probably the majority of the students that were there having graduated when you did. And, um, you know, there was, there was no question of belonging, but I think that, 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 that idea of belonging, I think is, is probably a challenging one uh, oh, for those students. and battling right. against that boy. I, I, I imagine them having you in their corner helped a lot. Well, I like to fight. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think, well, not, I think I know it is a continuous battle. It is ongoing because when you get there and it's culture shock and you look around and you see, you know, and even though Hamilton has made great strides in the number of students of color that are there, they're never congregated in the same place mm. at the same time. So you can't always visually see the progress, the impact, but it's there. Mm-hmm. Right. But at the same time, we've also increased the number of people in the dominant society. So, you know, it's always this balancing act that's going on. A constant battle, but a battle worth having. Sure. And what are the battles, what students today, what do you see them battling that are similar to what you had to deal with? I hope there's been some progress. I think it comes in different ways. I think that, in my time and when I was there, we didn't have the comfort and ease of technology. And I think technology can take away your critical skill and make you want things more immediate. Mm-hmm. And while I appreciate it, I like the fact that I can count my change and or, or I know when somebody's cheating me in my paycheck, right? Or that I can figure things out or that my brain is still working, will allow me to look at something critically and see that. But I think that the issues are still there and they're still the same. They just have reshaped in accordance with what the focus of the world is right now. So nothing new, mm-hmm. nothing new, mm-hmm. just different ways that it's presenting itself. Hmm. I have to challenge my young people but saying the school is not responsible for making you belong. You are. But the school is responsible for extending the invitation. And back in my day, we also made the invitation. Uh-huh. Which is different, you know. Um, like protests, I remember we did a protest. I mean, Free Bobby Seal, you know, Black Panthers, Angela. Day. Those things were about being there physically. And now you can be there digitally. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one step removed from the pain, but that's all they know. Right, right. But that's all they know. But I think, um, you know, and I've witnessed 
riots firsthand. I've been followed around stores just because I'm black Mm -hmm. waiting for me to steal something. And still to this day, I get mistreated, whether they mean it or not, Mm -hmm. you know, um, a bias or whatever level it's coming, it comes out as a wrong. I think young people today, I think today we have to go a little deeper. We have to do a better job at blending the old with the new. Because listen, folks are living long. We're not going anywhere. I don't <laughs> for a long, long time. Right. You better be able to talk to me and be able to hear my journey so that you can better understand yours. Mm. And you mentioned the, the, the being there physically. I mean, I think that's the danger today, right? Is in this digital age, it's getting easier and easier to just to separate, s- separate yes. yourself and just hear what you want to hear. And it's, it's, it's a yeah. dangerous sort of path we're on. Yeah. Yeah. I remember when raising my kids, I mean, I'm so um, sensitive to this and I'm hell bent on it that you have to know what you're talking about. And in order to know what you're talking about, you better do your homework. Mm-hmm. It's as simple as that, because I'm not the kind of girl that's going to follow you and you don't know what you're talking about. You better know better than me, more than me, and be louder than me. <laughs> if you want me to listen. And I follow you. I don't mean that I can't hear people who aren't. I understand. I understand. Oh, okay. I understand. You know, I, understand. I got it. I understand. Um, so we talked about the opportunity program. For those that don't know, can you just give give a give a little bit of a, an idea what what the uh, opportunity programs are in Hamilton? Yeah, opportunity programs came about in 1969. As a matter of fact, Hamilton Kirkland was one of the original schools that was requested by the state to make room for young women, uh, low income young women, to give them the opportunity. So Hamilton was on that founding core of opportunity programs for New York State. And what they do, or what opportunity programs does, is provide people who have the potential, but not the means with the support that they need to navigate and rise. So it is an opportunity. And we celebrated 50 years, I think, uh, two years ago, Lana. And there's a tree there outside of the Opportunity Program's office, which has a leaf on it of every graduate that Hmm. comes through that program, the name. That was one thing that I wanted to leave before I left, because we needed to have visible confirmation that our journey mattered. And we added to this institution a wealth of information. Um, a wealth of knowledge, history, all of these things that we did. And that we were still, I tell you, the best definition I came with, I I found, I didn't come up with it, but I found it um, of inclusion. Part of a set, but belonging to the whole. That's the mathematical equation (laughs) or definition of inclusion. And to me, that's perfect. Mm -hmm. So putting that tree there, meant we were included. Um, and it's such a beautiful thing because it stands out there so proudly. Back to your uh, arriving at, at Kirkland and through your, your journey to this point, is there anything you uh, wish you had known? Yeah. 
the biggest thing that I wish I had known was growing up as some tough shit. Hmm. I mean, really, if I, and, and I say this sometimes to students, you know, don't be fooled. Don't fall for the hype. Growing up is tough stuff. Being an adult entitles you to responsibility. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I had known that, I would. there would be a, some things I would have done differently. If I had known that everything I did, whether I was aware of it or not, was going to fall back on me, I would have made some different choices. Like what? Well, marrying the person I'm, oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. I, 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 I put it this way. I would not be divorced. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I would not be divorced and I would not have raised my children by myself. For every lesson that I learned, and I say this honestly, um, at Hamilton and at Kirkland, I put it to use. Sometimes painful, sometimes not. But if I knew going in what being an adult really meant, I would have done some things differently. I would have, indeed. All right, that's Phyllis Breland, class of 1980. Recently retired director of opportunity programs at Hamilton College. She says at one point in that conversation, you heard that she likes to fight. And she's definitely somebody I want in my corner. <laughs> and not coming at me. <laughs> it's obvious as you, as you hear her talk why she was in the role she was in. And why so many students who were touched by her talk about what an influence she's had. She's incredible. Absolutely incredible. It was an absolute pleasure to talk to her. My thanks to Phyllis Breland. My education continues. You have been listening to Had I Known on WHCL-FM, Clinton, New York. Had I Known.buzzsprout.com. Had I Known show on social media. As always, my thanks to Dr. Michael Woods for supplying the music on this show. And once again, Doc is going to play us out. Hope you enjoyed the show. We'll talk to you next week.
Had I known podcast show on your radio or take it to go.